Well, good morning, Mercy Hill. How are you? You guys doing okay? Awesome. It is, uh, it is so good to be here. Um, every time I get the chance to come home and in particular stand before you all, this faith family at Mercy Hill, I am always humbled and honored. This morning, uh, Mike sent me a text just to thank me for preaching here and uh, say that he was praying for me. And I responded and just said, Mike, it is an honor that you would entrust me with this privilege. Like, I know that Mercy Hill is a church that cherishes the preached word of God. And uh, it is just an honor to be able to stand before you and open God's word. Um, just real quick before we dive in, if you're visiting Mercy Hill and this is your first time, maybe you're here in the room or uh, watching uh, the live stream, uh, please just remember that I am not the normal preacher. Okay? So if you get mad... You don't know my email. You can email Mike, okay? And the good news is, Mike will be back next week, the real preacher, and, and then you can uh, hear uh, some really good preaching. Uh, let me begin by showing you a picture. We'll put this picture up on the screen. How many of you recognize an image like this? Anyone in the room? Raise your hand. Okay. The technical term for this is an autostereogram, but the more common name for this image is the magic eye poster. Uh, how many of you, just true confession, had one of these posters on your wall growing up? Kids that were born in like the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, a few of, a few of you. Okay, true confession. When I was in junior high, I had several of these hanging on my bedroom wall. I grew up just down the street here. And I would stare at these pictures at night and listen to Tupac. It's a, it's a miracle that I became a productive member of society, um, much less that I went on to become a pastor. If you're unfamiliar with this picture, um, the idea is that if you stare at the image long enough or in the right way, the picture will change from utter chaos and abstract colors to a crystal clear 3D image. So go ahead and give it a go. Stare at the picture. Oftentimes, if you relax your eyes, you can see the 3D image come out. Or if you cross your eyes, you can see it. I learned as a kid that if you lean in really close and then lean back, that, that you can often see it. If you see the image, don't, don't shout it out, but, but give, it a, give it a try. It's really hilarious watching you guys try to do this from, from this perspective. Did anyone, did anyone see what it is? Shout it out. A shark. Yeah, a shark. Okay, you can take it down, lest they be distracted the rest of the sermon. Why am I, why am I showing you this? Well, it is a perfect metaphor for my relationship to the topic that we're going to be talking about today. Here's what I mean. Today I want to talk to you about heaven. And this is kind of embarrassing to admit in front of all of you, but for much of my life, I viewed heaven the same way many of you viewed that image on the screen. It was abstract, and it was confusing, and I never really had a clear picture of what it was. I mean, I think I had, like most of you, I had a cultural understanding of heaven, but I did not have a clear biblical understanding of heaven. But over this past year, the year 2020, through a combination of circumstances, heaven went from being somewhat abstract and confusing to becoming crystal clear and something that I have longed for in a way that I have never longed for anything else. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We will get there in just a bit, but in order to understand heaven fully, in order for it to become crystal clear in our minds, in order for it to become a 3D image, so to speak, we need to begin where the Bible begins, and the Bible does not begin in Revelation. The opening words of our Holy Scriptures go like this. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the Hebrew word, the original language of the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for create is the word bara, 
bara. Later, a Latin phrase would be added to that Hebrew word, and that Latin phrase was ex nihilo, and it was used to describe the way God created. Ex nihilo in Latin means out of nothing. So God, barad, he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. So, so God speaks, and mountains come forth. He speaks, and stars and galaxies appear in the sky. He speaks animals and bugs and grass and flowers and sunshine into existence. And at the center of his creation, in a place we call the Garden of Eden, God places human beings, male and female, Adam and Eve. And then we read the, this in Genesis chapter 2. We'll put it on the screen. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, after God had created everything, it says, Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And in that moment, there was peace. All was well. Everything was perfect. There was no sin, no injustice, no disease, no suffering. Now, this is hard for us to imagine because we only know a world that has been tainted by sin, but we have to wrap our minds around this. There are in that moment, in the Garden of Eden, picture this, fleshly bodies without chronic pain or disease. There are brains and minds without mental illness or anxiety or depression. There was wine, but there was no alcoholism. There's food, but there's no gluttony or hunger or bulimia. There was marriage, but no divorce. There was nakedness, but no shame. There was sex, but no addiction or pornography or rape or oppression. There was work, but there was no sweat or toil. There were animals everywhere, but there were no cats, okay? You, it was a world that was not tainted by sin. It was perfect. In the Hebrew language, the, there is a word that describes this garden-like euphoria. The Hebrew word is the word shalom, and it means peace or well-being. A guy named Cornelius Plantinga Jr. described shalom this way in his fantastic book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He says this, In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Listen to this. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Everything, at least for a moment, was as it ought to be. Sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? Well, it lasts for roughly 24 hours. Because when you turn the page in the Genesis story, you get to Genesis chapter 3, and we are introduced in chapter 3 to the enemy of the story. It's a crafty serpent who is hell-bent on destroying God's prized creation. And through this serpent's deceit, sin comes crashing into the world. And sin affected everything. It left no stone unturned. It distorted and perverted everything about who we are. So to quote a pastor friend of mine, sin kicked open the door to a world of hurt. Sin kicked open the door to cancer, to divorce, to poverty, to injustice, to hunger, to violence, to war, oppression, racism, sexism. It completely changed the world as we know it. So right now, in this moment, because of sin, there is not one square inch of creation, including your own mind and your own body, that has not been impacted or affected by sin. And so we're left wondering at the end of Genesis chapter 3, what is God going to do about all of this? How is God going to fix this? How is he going to right all of these wrongs? How is he going to liberate humanity from this decay once and for all? 
But tucked away in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, there is a glimmer of hope. There is a promise in Genesis 3.15 that one day God is going to send someone through the line of Adam and Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. Someone who will one day defeat sin and evil fully. And this serpent-crushing Savior, he is going to establish a new heavens and a new earth. And all of us that have placed our faith in him will spend eternity with him in ever-increasing joy. That, my friends, is how the story of the Bible ends. And that is what I want to talk about this morning. Now, this morning, I want to approach the text a little different. Typically, if you were at my church in Oregon, I would read a verse and then explain a verse. I would read a verse and then explain a little verse until we got to the end. But this morning, I, I want to do it a little bit different. I want to read the, the entirety of the passage to you, and I want to invite you to use your sanctified imagination as I just read portions of the last three chapters of the Bible to you. So I'm just going to read. Perhaps you want to follow along. These words will all be on the screen. Or perhaps you want to just close your eyes and listen and envision that future day. But here's my encouragement to you. As best you can, do not get sidetracked or distracted by the imagery. Just try to envision it. Try to feel it in your bones, what that day will be like. So these are the words of John as he's attempting to describe what he's seeing as God pulls back the curtain on eternity future and allows him to peek ahead to this future day. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Then I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the, those who desire to take from the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? At the end of all time, we have this beautiful image of Jesus renewing all things, and he is inviting us into this renewal. The question that we must ask, and the question that you should ask every time you read the Bible is this, so what? What does it actually mean for us today? Well, let me acknowledge something, and this is very important, especially for those of you in the room who are more theologically astute or perhaps naturally curious. There is obviously a ton of mystery in the few chapters we just read. There's mystery about how exactly all of this will take place. There is mystery about specific details and the chronology and the imagery described in the chapters we just read. There have been many books written about these chapters in the Bible. There is mystery about heaven and hell and the judgment. And we could very easily get side railed with all sorts of debate about the end times. But... If we aren't super careful, we can get caught up in the mystery of how and when all of this is going to happen, and in doing so, completely miss the magnitude of what is being described here. Because for the believer in Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Christ, this is our eternal reality. What we would typically call heaven, but what John calls the new heavens and the new earth. Do you ever think about heaven? Do you ever dwell about what it might be like? To be honest, for much of my life, I didn't really think about heaven. I think that comes with being young and feeling invincible. You don't really think about it. But the older I get and the more funerals I preach at, the more I ponder this future reality. See, I think for many of us, I know myself included, our view of heaven is more informed by popular culture than it is informed by the word of God. And so when we imagine heaven, we often think of heaven as this place that we go when we die, and it's up in the sky and we'll float around on the clouds wearing a diaper and playing the harp for eternity. And even though we know, like at an intellectual level, that can't be what it's like, we, I think, lack the imagination to ponder what it will really be like. Because the truth is, when scriptures talk about eternity, it isn't so much about us being transported from this world into the next, but rather, it's a story about God restoring all of creation and inviting us into it as his beloved children. And brothers and sisters, it will be amazing. It will be amazing. 
Every year, usually towards the end of the summer, I take my staff away for a, a week to plan for the next year. I, I work with my best friends. I think I have the greatest church staff in the world. I love what I do. And so we take a week away and we plan and we play and dream for the future. Now, normally we go to the Oregon coast. It's really beautiful. If you've never been to the Oregon coast, I would highly recommend it. Normally we would go there, but this year a family in our church gifted us a house on a lake. And so we went to the lake instead. And each afternoon, after we had worked hard and played hard, we would always migrate down to the floating dock just as the sun was setting. And every evening as the sun was setting, we would sit on the floating dock and we would just tell stories and laugh. Oftentimes they were stories about our childhood or stories about high school. And to be honest, they had no theological value. But one afternoon... One of our staff gals, Molly, brought up the topic of heaven, and we talked about it for a long while, and we asked questions like, what will it actually be like? What will we do there? Who will we see? What will it be like to be in the presence of Jesus without fear or shame or insecurity? And as we sat there on that floating dock, I nearly started to cry because I imagined that what I was experiencing in that moment was, in fact, heavenly. As Randy Alcorn says in his little book on heaven, he says, the best of life on earth is but a glimpse of heaven. The best of life on earth is but a glimpse of heaven. I felt like in that moment, I was getting a glimpse of my eternal reality. Here's what I mean by that. I felt like in that moment, I was doing work that I love and I was surrounded by people that I love, all the while enjoying God and his good creation. And I think we see each of those elements clearly in the scriptures I just read to you. So with the rest of our time, I want to unpack that more fully, and I want to answer this question. What will heaven be like? What will heaven be like? At the very least, based on the authority of God's word, I think it will include three things. If you're a note taker, we will put all three of these on the screen. First, in heaven, we will spend our time doing work that we love. We will spend our time doing work that we love. Revelation 22, 3, which we just read, says that his servants will serve him. His servants will serve him. What do servants do? Servants work. They work. Now, I know right now some of you in the room are like, wait a second, time out, Justin. I have worked my whole life so that I could retire and live in Florida and not work. And now you're telling me that when I die, I have to spend eternity working? Yes. The Bible says that, but here's the key. You will be doing work that you love, that you love. I mean, think about it. John in Revelation is describing heaven as a place without sin or without the effects of sin. It is a Garden of Eden-like atmosphere. And think back to Genesis 1 and 2 to the Garden of Eden. When was work introduced to humanity? Was it before or after the fall? It was before the fall. Before sin ever came into the world, we were created to work. It was good and natural, but here's why we struggle to believe that. Because when sin entered the world, part of the curse that was laid on humanity meant that work suddenly became miserable. Before the fall, work was glorious and fun and fulfilling, but after the fall, it became labor-intensive and painful. Genesis 3.18 says it was full of thorns and thistles. In other words, work wasn't added to our life because of sin. It became miserable because of sin. So in heaven, in this new city, we will work, but it is work that we love, and it will always bring us great satisfaction, and it will always be restful, and it will always bring us great joy. 
In Isaiah chapter 65, the prophet speaks of this future reality. He's envisioning heaven, and several times in his description, he mentions work. I want you to listen to this. I want to read you a portion of Isaiah 65. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage. He says, pay close attention now. I'm creating new heavens and a new earth. All the earlier troubles, chaos, and pain are things of the past to be forgotten. Look ahead with joy. Anticipate what I'm creating. No more sounds of weeping in the city. No cries of anguish. No more babies dying in the cradle or old people who don't enjoy a full lifetime. 100th birthdays will be considered normal. Anything less will seem like a cheat. They'll build houses and move in. They'll plant fields and eat what they grow. For my people will be as long-lived as trees. My chosen ones will have satisfaction in their work. They won't work and have nothing come of it. They won't have children snatched out from under them. For they themselves are plantings blessed by God. With their children and grandchildren, likewise God blessed. Before they call out, I will answer. Before they've finished speaking, I'll have heard. Wolf and lamb will graze in the same meadow. Lion and ox eat straw from the same trough. But snakes, they'll get a diet of dirt. They'll get a diet of dirt. In the new heavens and the new earth, God's chosen ones, listen, will have satisfaction in their work. We will build houses and plant fields, and there will not be a hint of difficulty or pain or frustration. One time I, I asked my wife, Katie, what she thought she would be doing for work in heaven, and she immediately responded, gardening. She goes, I'm going to have the best garden in heaven. And we, we laughed about it, but friends, I think it's true. I think she's going to have an amazing garden and every plant will yield perfect produce and there won't be any bugs or worms or sweat or sore backs. What is it for you? Like what type of work do you love? Maybe like my wife, it's gardening or maybe it's woodworking or making coffee or creating art or building things or making music. I hope I'm mowing grass just all the time. I would be totally content just mowing grass. Whatever it is, brothers and sisters, you will partake in it in ever-increasing joy. But it gets so much better than that. Because second, in heaven, we will be surrounded by those we love. We will be surrounded by those we love. In chapter 21, verse 3, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The word that comes to mind here is the word reunion. Every year growing up, we had a, a big family reunion at my Uncle Davy's property. And as you can imagine, it was a big southern affair. Gallons of sweet tea, potato salad, watermelon, peach cobbler, ribs. We would play horseshoes and swim in the pond. And then in recent years, sing karaoke together as a family. You can imagine how that might go. But the best part of these family reunions was seeing your entire family. It was showing up to this reunion and seeing your aunts and uncles that you haven't seen in a year and giving them a hug. It was getting to play all day with these cousins that you have not seen all year. There is going to be a reunion in heaven, the likes of which we have never experienced here on earth. And I think there are going to be two parts to this reunion. Part one is Christian brothers and sisters being reunited to one another. I believe deeply based on God's word that when we enter heaven, whatever that might actually look like, we will be reunited with our loved ones in Christ who have gone before us. I think of passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17, which says that the dead in Christ will rise first and that those of us who are still alive will be caught up together in the air with them. Or think of 2 Samuel chapter 12, King 
King David. King David loses an infant son. If you've ever lost a child, please listen to this. King David loses an infant son. And in his grieving, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, King David says, I will go to see him again someday. I will see him again someday. There are other examples, of course, but based on the totality of scriptures, I believe that we will see our loved ones again and we will embrace them as one big family and worship King Jesus. But that is only one part of this reunion. The other part of the reunion, even greater than our reunion with other followers of Jesus, is our reunion with God himself. Revelation 22 verses 4 and 5 says, they will see his face and the night will be no more. It also says, and some of you may have noticed this in other translations, that we will have his name tattooed on our forehead. Now, I have to imagine that is symbolic. Okay, I don't think that there's like an ink parlor and you have to hit the ink parlor before you're allowed into the pearly gates. I don't think that's how it works. I think what it's hinting at by, by getting his name tattooed on our foreheads is the closeness, the eternal nature of our relationship. The great philosopher Jay-Z and his wife, uh, Beyonce, Mike's going to be back next week. I just want to remind you about that. They have this song. Just go with it, okay? They have this song where they, they sing about their ring tattoos. Under their wedding bands, they have tattoos. And they sing or rap these words. They say, matching tats. This ink don't come off even if the rings come off. What they mean by that is that even if we take off these rings to fight, or even if we take off these rings to leave one another, the ink stays forever. We have covenanted to one another forever. Now, I'm not saying you should take your marriage advice from Jay-Z and Beyonce. Here's my point. When the scriptures talk about us having God's name tattooed on our forehead, it's talking about us being united to him in covenant relationship forever, forever. Our hearts will be so filled with love and delight for him that we will not know how to contain it. Randy Alcorn, talking about this reunion, says this. Think of friends or family members who love Jesus and are with him now. Picture them with you, walking together in this place. All of you have powerful bodies, stronger than those of an Olympic athlete. You are laughing, playing, talking, reminiscing. You reach up to a tree to pick an apple or an orange. You take a bite. It's so sweet that it's startling. You've never tasted anything so good. Now you see someone coming toward you. It's Jesus. With a big smile on his face, you fall to your knees and worship. He pulls you up and embraces you. Oh, what a day that will be. We will be doing work that we love. We will be surrounded by people that we love. And lastly, in heaven, we will enjoy God and his good creation. We will enjoy God and his good creation. Perhaps a better way of saying it is that we will enjoy God and his perfect recreation or renewal of all things. In Revelation 21 verse 5, Jesus proclaims himself, behold, I am making all things new. Now there is some debate among scholars about whether this is going to, this new creation is going to be an entirely new thing or whether it's just a renewal of an existing creation. But the point I want you to grasp is that heaven will be a place where sin and the effects of sin cease to exist. As Sally Lloyd-Jones once said, it will be a place where all the sad things of earth come untrue. Where all the sad things on earth come untrue. 2020 was the most difficult year I've had as a pastor. And so in 2020, perhaps more than any other year of my life, I have dwelled on this reality of heaven and I have longed for this day. See, I don't know how your 2020 went. I'm sure you had your own struggles. But let me explain 
how it went from my perspective on my little corner of the universe. Here's how 2020 went for me. In early March of 2020, a sweet young family in our church tragically and unexpectedly lost their three-year-old daughter. One minute, this little girl was vibrant, full of life and joy, and then she came down with a mild fever, and when within hours, flatlined and was gone. And to this day, doctors still can't explain what actually happened. In the days that followed, I watched this young husband try to hold it together for his wife. I watched the entire family, all of whom were part of our church, grieve and try to make sense of this very senseless tragedy. And I watched my staff plan a funeral for a little girl who loved unicorns and donuts and the color pink. <clears throat> that very next week, we entered national quarantine as we tried to slow the spread of COVID-19. And things like mask and hand sanitizer and social distancing became normal to us. And as you are well aware, that was our reality for much of 2020. This pandemic has led to all sorts of mental health and relational issues in our world, and in particular, the church that I pastor. A few weeks into the pandemic, our youngest daughter, Willa, got very sick. She had a fever. She was lethargic. She was not eating. She had all the same symptoms as the three-year-old girl who had just passed away a few weeks earlier. And though she has recovered and is doing well now, there were several days where the doctors couldn't provide any answers and just told us to keep an eye on her. You can imagine, given the circumstance we were in, how difficult that week was. A few months into the pandemic and all within the same month, I got a call from three different couples in our church who were on the brink of divorce because of the sinful, stupid decisions of their husbands. In early May, Katie and I got a call informing us that her aunt, a woman who Katie loves deeply, had contracted MRSA in her spine and was fighting for her life. We watched as her husband tried to gain information from the doctors, but he was unable to get in touch with them and was unable to visit due to COVID restrictions. Her aunt has miraculously survived, but it has been a long, slow, and painful journey. In late May, the video of George Floyd being murdered spread across social media and shocked our nation. And then protests and counter-protests swept the country, and in particular, the city of Portland, where I pastor. As racial tensions flared and people felt like they had to somehow choose sides of the discussion, then summer officially hit. And with summer came wildfires on the West Coast, and at one point, it looked like the entire West Coast was going to burn to the ground. We knew several families that had to evacuate their homes and leave everything behind, unsure if they would ever make it back home. On August 4th, a massive explosion occurred in Beirut, Lebanon, and I watched a dear brother in our church who was fighting cancer at the time and is from Lebanon, struggled to find out if his family was still alive. As summer wrapped up and the first round of stimulus money began to fade, I watched several close friends lose their jobs and struggle to keep their businesses afloat. In September of 2020, I watched the church that gave me a start as a pastor and the church that sent me out to plant six years ago go through an immense amount of pain and grief as they navigated the pain of spiritual abuse and failed leadership. It eventually resulted in every elder of that church getting on stage and resigning and shutting that church down. Then came the election, 
in November, and I watched as Christ followers begin to speak ill of one another and say horrible things to one another simply because of dumb political opinions that will not matter in the kingdom of heaven. And then towards the end of the year, to deal with everything that I was trying to process, I went back to counseling to try to come to terms with what was going on. But I tell you all that to say this, by the end of 2020, heaven sure seemed nice to me. Not, not in a weird way, not like I was hoping to die, but in a way that, that I longed for it, in a way that I, I had never longed for it before. Perhaps the sweetest reality, reality to me is that heaven is going to be a place where we will experience pain and tragedy and suffering no more. We see that in Revelation 21, verse 4. Maybe I can explain it like this. Every night after we put our girls to bed, our oldest daughter, Naya, will find a half dozen reasons to get out of bed and come talk to us. So she'll come out and say, Dad, I'm, I'm hot, I'm thirsty, I'm cold, I can't sleep, I can't find my blanket, I can't find my book. And every time she comes down the hallway, we'll say, Naya, go back to bed. And she'll come out and she'll look at me and she'll go, Daddy, will you carry me back to bed? And nine times out of 10, I will stop what I'm doing. I will get up and I will carry her back to bed. My wife will laugh at me as if to say, you are such a sucker, Justin. <laughs> and I am, I totally am. Here's why I do that. Because I know that there is a day coming when my daughter will not ask me to carry her back to bed. There is a day coming when I will experience all of those sweet father moments for the last time. There will be a last game of hide and seek, a last dance party in the kitchen after dinner, a last band-aid on a scraped knee, a last snuggle on the couch on Saturday morning, a last story time and prayers in bed. Eventually, my little gr girls will turn into young women and they will not want their daddy doing those things anymore. And here's the terrifying thing about it. Young fathers in the room, please listen up. It happens so slowly that you never know when it's your last one. So you just have to savor every single one of them. Now that's kind of a sweet but sad version of quote, last things. But in a sweet and wonderful way, there is a day coming when we will experience the pains of this sin-soaked world for the last time. Think about it, there will be a last 911 call made. There will be a last bullet fired. There will be a last bomb dropped, a last divorce filed, a last tear will fall. The scriptures tell us of a day when all of the unpleasant and unlovely things of the world will be no more, no more. I once had another pastor encourage me to keep a list of all the things that will be no more in heaven. What are the things that will be no more? Based on his encouragement, here is my list. In heaven, there will be no more cancer. There will be no more divorce, no more affairs or custody battles, no more loneliness or rejection or depression or isolation, no more identity politics, no more Fox News or CNN, no more bad golf shots, no more replacing batteries in your smoke alarm in the middle of the night, no more thinning hair or love handles, no more gray hair throwing out your back while putting on your socks, no more sleepless nights, no more pointless debates on social media. No more stubbed toes or splinters or embarrassing moments. No more Parkinson's or MRSA or dementia or ALS. 
No more autism or Alzheimer's. No more pink slips or foreclosure notices. No more bankruptcy. No more anger or lies or manipulation. No more interpersonal conflict. No more leaders letting us down. No more abuse of power. No more spiritual abuse. No more racism or sexism or oppression. No more hunger or thirst or poverty or homelessness. No more flat tires or busted transmissions. No more fear or stress or worry. No more coughs or colds or kidney stones. No more car accidents. No more crosses on the side of the road. No more children's hospitals. No more tiny caskets, no more human trafficking, no more wars, no more international conflict, no more emergency rooms, no more ICUs, no more pacemakers, no more radiation or chemotherapy, no more allergies or cavities, no more casts or crutches or wheelchairs, no more suicide bombings or school shootings, no more forest fires or hurricanes or earthquakes, no more tornadoes or tsunamis or explosions, no more grief counseling or funeral homes or homicide units, no more incarceration, no more death penalty, no more yelling or road rage, no more orphanages. No more orphans, no more child abuse, no more rape, no more insecurity or fear or shame, no more taxes or bills, no more coronavirus, no more quarantine or hand sanitizer or mask, no more ventilators or vaccines, no more chronic pain, no more mourning, no more death, no more tears. There is a day coming, brothers and sisters, when the nail-scarred hands of Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There is a day coming when Jesus, the serpent-crushing Savior of the world, will say once and for all, no more, no more. And this, this will be our reality forever. I'll close with the words of the old hymn. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. God, we are so grateful. We are so undeserving. But as we say, God, your mercy is more. Your mercy on our life, your grace on our life. So incredible. God, I, I pray for those of us in the room who have placed our faith in you, that you would allow this moment to be one of celebration, to be one of gratitude as we reflect on the good news of Jesus. God, for those gathered here who may not have ever placed their faith in you, I pray that this moment would be a time of repentance, that it would be an opportunity for them to follow you for the first time. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.